Okay. Ready? Yep. All right. Um, ah, shit. I should have thought of a funny intro thing to say. Um, I had, I had a really good one for last week's. It was, uh, uh, the only show where we train in thousand ton ankle weights and open the six inner gates so that we can run circles around the more liberal podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'll have anything that good though. Um, okay. Hey everyone. Welcome to neighbor science. The only podcast about, uh, political economy and fluctuating gravity wells. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today I have a friend of the show, Abdul Malik, to uh, reunite for uh, our Gunbuster Diebuster series. Uh, how you doing, Abdul? I'm doing well. Um, I'm excited to get into Diebuster. It's been uh, it's been a while, but I'm yeah. You know, as someone who's slowly feeling themselves like become a weeb in real time. Um, I'm very excited to to talk this. Like I, I was talking, mentioning this to you off pod, but like I've been watching significantly more anime and also playing hundred hour JRPGs. Um, <laughs> and I think I think my Catboy body pillow is in the mail right now as well. Yeah, becoming a weeb feels like uh, being diagnosed with a terminal illness, but without knowing that you'll never have the sweet release of death. Yeah, I I I'm one of those people who went to Japan before they became a weeb. <laughs> like it I did the whole thing in reverse, so now I'm excited to go back and, you know, uh tell everyone in Japan they're not acting <laughs> they're not acting um Japanese enough. Yeah. Um so unfortunately Hermes is not feeling well today, so he was not able to join us, but I'm hoping that he'll uh return for the uh, aim for the top three anime that is coming out. When did we figure out it was? Was it this year or next year? I, I think remember. wasn't it uh, wasn't it end of this year? Um, There's so much good Google shit that's going to come out at the end of this year. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm actually like really into the uh, aim for the top anime, especially after seeing both of these together. It's like each one has a different spin on it. I think one is obviously better than the other. Yeah. Uh, it was. Okay, uh, it was released, uh, it doesn't have a firm release date yet, but it's expected to come out either at the end of this year or sometime at the beginning of next year. Okay, well that's good because this page says it may come after 2022, (laughs) so hopefully it's not that long. (laughs) The Wikipedia article for it said that some other anime from Gainax is coming out in 2022, so that's... Oh no! Yeah. It may mean Gunbuster Three could come later than that. Okay, Ugh. well, I mean, future neighbor science—you know—in the post-apocalypse, um, will I uh, hopefully hopefully we will all be living on the fucking, uh, you know, in a municipalist paradise, um, watching anime and also farming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this other thing that they're talking about, Udu in Blue. Um, is a sequel to another Gainax thing from the 80s that we should probably watch. Royal Space Force, The Wings of Onamaze. Onamaze. That's a Uh, French word that I actually can't pronounce. That's pretty rare. (laughs) This looks extremely good. Like, I'm just looking at the the, um, art right now. Yeah, it looks uh, cool. The more more Zeppelins, the better. I will say that. Um, Plus, it has a very Top Gun-looking plane. 
Yeah, and uh, and lots of clouds. Clouds in anime are beautiful. Uh, clouds yeah. and food, I think, are the two things that that anime animates best. Yes. Um, we just watched. Uh, we just watched uh, the 2004, um, you know, degenerate American film, uh, Sky Captain: The World of Tomorrow, for the first <laughs> time yeah. in like <laughs> five to ten years. Man, that movie holds up, but it holds up on the strength of its Zeppelin game. I will say that more than anything else. Uh, have you ever watched Last Exile? That's a that's an anime all about Zeppelins. I have I have the uh, DVD box set of Last Exile. I got rid of all my DVDs, but I kept two, and Last Exile was one of them. And it nice. came with like a little pack in, a little pack in figure of one of the main characters uh, in the box, which I still haven't opened. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, extremely good. Um. Okay. So. We are talking about Die Buster today. It is the sequel to Gunbuster. Uh, if you haven't listened to our Gunbuster episode, I would recommend listening to that first. But it's not like this depends on that episode. Um, so it came out in two thousand four. It was uh, like uh, Gunbuster. It was for the anniversary of their studio. Um, this one was not directed by Hideaki Yano, unfortunately, and. I think that's we both agree that that's one of the major weaknesses of it. Um, yeah, you can tell. You can really tell that Hideaki Anno was fairly removed from this. Yeah, you know what's weird though. Um, I just looked up the director. It's uh, Kazuya Tsurumaki, and uh, his direct directorial stuff is the like Evangelion sequel stuff. So like 1.0, 2.0, Um Okay. He also directed FL like Fooly Cooly. What the fuck? Interesting. Um, um, oh, and it looks like he was involved in yeah. the original Evangelion too. Um, huh. It's it feels weird because like um, because like he I love I love Fooly Cooly. Okay, he's the art amazing, director, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, this this definitely feels like a weak debut from someone who's made stuff that's as good as it is. You know, I haven't seen the Eva rebuilds, but yeah, like like uh, Fully Cooley um, is absolutely incredible, uh, and the art in Eva obviously is absolutely stunning. All right, so yeah, Die Buster, uh, two thousand four anniversary, etc. Um, it's the same structure as Gunbuster. It has six episodes, um, so it's a really Easy watch if uh, you're curious about it at all. I would definitely recommend watching it. Um, you know, I think we both agree that it's not quite as good as Gunbuster. So, Gunbuster, you absolutely should watch. Diebuster, if you have three hours, it doesn't hurt to watch. You know, um, uh, it is. It is one. I will say this: it it was dense enough or convoluted enough that there was no way I could have watched it in one sitting. Um, <laughs> like I had to split it up over three days to make, to just like process it and stuff like that. But right. I don't feel like I wasted my time with it. Yeah. I mean, like it's really cool action. It's really spectacular visuals. Um, but you will be very confused about the story for sure. <laughs> I, I, Abdul and I still don't really get what happened in the show, I think. <laughs> Not at all. I wish I understood what happened. Like, I want to understand it way more than I actually do. Um, uh -huh. At some point, it may warrant a rewatch, maybe in a year or two before Aim for the Top 3 comes out. Um, uh -huh. 
But, I mean, like, if if we want to kick off the discussion, the one thing I will say is that Gunbuster had such a fucking phenomenal opening where it was, like, the training montage at the high school and the yeah. robots were doing, like, cheer practice. And this had none of that, right? Like, it was a way more subdued and I think a little more of, like, an obvious opening. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue is, like, when we think of 80s movies, training montages and, like, you know, gym clothes and, and that kind of stuff, like, that comes to mind as, like, a thing from the 80s. But if you think of, like, a movie from the 2000s, what do you think of? Um, I think of, like, Training Day. I think okay. of, you know, I think of, like, the that, like, whole genre of, like, mediocre crime cinema that uh, came out during the early 2000s and, like, historical epics. Like, I think of, like, Gladiator, Troy, Alexander, Training Day, um, yeah, you know, okay. shit like that, like SWAT. <laughs> um, uh, maybe For me, just, all I can think of is, yeah. like, anti-terrorism movies. Okay, that's, actually... That's the only thing that really comes to mind. Like, rendition and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, and, like, you know. Hurt Locker and, like, like 24... Like, if I think of the 2000s, I think of, like, 24-style action stuff. For some reason, in my head, those were planted as, like, late 2000s, which I guess is still 2000s. You know, I mean, I was thinking, like, 2001 to 2005-ish. But, no, that that definitely reads, because that's, like, all there was on TV for a while was, how are we going to stop the suicide bomber from blowing up the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I and definitely watched it for a really long time before I noticed that it was, like, just propaganda, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I still love 24 on its, like, merits as a TV show, especially those first couple of seasons are really, like, gripping, and it's very inventive for what it was. Uh -huh. uh, I'll actually, something funny about Kiefer Sutherland, um, he is the uh, grandson of the... Um, Canada's one of Canada's like socialist heroes, the the first guy who introduced really? healthcare. Yeah, like uh, Tommy Douglas was the uh, premier of Saskatchewan, and um, it was a he was the guy who created universal healthcare in Saskatchewan, which was the first like universal healthcare system in uh, North America, and eventually led to the creation of like uh, Medicare um, in Canada and a bunch of other places. Um, he's, he's, was also the founder of like our really shitty left-wing quasi-social democratic, um, <laughs> left-wing party, right? Like our, uh -huh. our third party in, in parliament. And it's really weird to like, think that like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland, who was in the most like jingoistic, um, like bullshit, arguably like incredibly racist TV show, uh, is the grandson of, um, of like, yeah, this like pastor who, wrote books on eugenics, you know, it was the sixties, uh, and, and thought everyone should have healthcare. That is really weird. Um, so I was just thinking like one of the things that allowed Gunbuster to, uh, use all those eighties tropes is that it, it did come out in 80, 88 to 89. So it was right at the end of the eighties, but this came out in 2004. So like the 2000s didn't really have a solid identity yet. So I think maybe that's part of the reason why it didn't have like any 2000s tropes. Um, Cause another thing I was thinking of like a trope of the 2000s is like really overwrought uh, convoluted plots, like, like lost the TV show. Yes. Which came out the same year as, as Die Buster did. Um, 
So maybe maybe that's the 2000s thing that it did is <laughs> just having a really overwrought convoluted plot that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um it it makes it actually like I just googled like uh best 2000s anime and I'm looking at the ones I've seen and stuff like, you know, Paranoia Agent. Yeah. Um and stuff like that like aren't actually sort of it was it it's a lot of animes with really dense um plots that I yeah. I think like both like globally um people's like attitudes towards entertainment were shifting but they hadn't like coalesced yet like lost was a revolutionary show because it was different if you watch it now it's not very good but it's just it was so much of like what is a mystery how many subplots and like relationships can you build it was very different from like the procedural quality of uh television at that time right and i don't Mm -hmm. know if that was reflected in japan but from like looking at what came out around that that time same year and stuff like that it it feels like it yeah i mean i think uh evangelion actually had some influence on that because it did have a really complex plot um and a lot of people tried to copy that after evangelion came out which was 1999 um was it 99 or was it 94 god damn i'm having to look up way too much stuff <laughs> um, it earned it though like, oh 19, 1995 earned. okay it, it okay. did yeah 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 um and that was you know part of the talent of Hideaki Anno, I think. Um, but I, I did remember there is one uh, 2000s uh, anime era thing that the show did really uh, get into, which is moe culture. Um, so that was like a super popular uh, thing at that time. And it's basically like the the academic definition is... Uh, you know, referring to feelings of strong affection, mainly towards female characters in anime, manga, and video games, and other media directed at the otaku market. So it's like really cute characters that you like ha- have like a weird parasocial type relationship with. Um, and which uh, this definitely tries to tries to do. Like that was one of yeah. the things I watched this with Megan, and she pointed out that um, like it was moe as fuck, uh, and yes. like that <laughs> made the fan service in it like a little more uncomfortable than it was in like gunbuster which the kids are in high school but they're effectively presented as like full-fledged adults for all intents and purposes yeah right um whereas in this one there's definitely like a uh sort of like slightly like lolly thing going on with the main character i don't know if you agree but yeah because like, she actually childish it. yeah like stupid childish too yeah and like i think i think it's funny and cute when she is acting childish but when you combine it with the fan service stuff, it is pretty uncomfortable. Um, one positive I will say, because I don't want to get too hard on Die Buster, I still really enjoyed it. Yeah, it has a it has a really enjoyable opening. Uh, like the anime opening for that series is extremely stylish, extremely well done. I didn't. Skip uh, yeah, it I once, love the song. Which, yeah, yeah, the song and the style of her like walking through the different situations and stuff like that, and just like the yeah. way it's animated is so fucking good um Uh and yeah the song slaps it's been added to my rotation (laughs) yeah i was i was trying to come up with uh a top five anime op list the other day and uh totally forgot about that one and it would definitely break the top five now uh yeah it my my number one at this point though might be the dot hack sign op it's really really fucking good that's i think one of the best parts of the show is the music um but anyway okay yeah um okay so i actually don't have many notes on the first episode but 
Um, it's a pretty straightforward episode. Um, you know, Nono wants to become a space pilot. She talks to these old men who are supposed to, who are supposedly space pilots. They're basically stealing valor um, from the the topless who are the ace space pilots of the time. And uh, they tell her like, "Oh, it's impossible. You have to go through like what was it like seven or eight years of school, and then you get to space, and then from there you have to do a bunch more years of school." A and, training ship or whatever for another yeah, five years. Yeah, and the yeah, and then even if you make it past that, you'll just be on like some you know piece of shit like not cool, uh, in some type not cool type of job, I guess. Um, just trying to discourage her, and um, it turns out that there is a real topless in the bar, uh, and they get attacked by something. It was. It's like um, a giant Martian bug. Yeah. One of the space monster type things that isn't, it's not supposed to be there, uh, basically. And um, they get saved by Lalk, who is the one of the two main characters. And she is the the first topless who's actually there. That was a really cool sequence, I think. Um, I really liked uh, how the her uh, buster machine like materialized out of nowhere around her i thought that was really cool um yeah like the the biggest immediate difference for me in this series was the fact that the buster machines are like significantly more anthropomorphized and stuff like that like they're it's very it's very shades of eva but not it doesn't go to as far as like eva did with it but like i liked how you could see their personalities it felt uh very like pacific rimish where each one had its like uh, has its like very defined um, like archetype, and you can like see within that. And like their interactions with them are really cool. Like it's, I wish they had explored that more actually throughout the show because at a certain point that part becomes background noise. Yeah, yeah, they really get into it in episode three, um, and then it yeah it does kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. Um, um, and then they they it turns out that she's also she's some sort of robot, which is again no, no, like yeah, a right. Yeah, no, no, is like yeah. a very out of nowhere twist in the in that sequence as well. Um, do we like this is the part where I I get confused. We never saw her her creation as a robot, right? Or am I no. just did I just blank out? Okay. Yeah, that's the kind of weird thing. She just kind of comes out of nowhere, like in. The original Gunbuster, we like see the origin of oh, fuck. What's her name? Um, in this in this series, she's just referred to as No No Riri. Um, yeah, um, Noriko. Uh, but I, um, Noriko, yeah, yes. like like we 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 see like the very beginning of Noriko, where it's like a picture of her with her dad when she's a baby, and then she goes into the like academy, and it's like okay, that makes sense as an origin, but. Um, in Die Buster, we don't really get much of an origin for Nono. She she comes out of like just this wooden building and then walks into town and it's not really clear like I guess the thing is it's like there's no clear direction for like what she's doing at first other than like, oh I guess she wants to go into space because she's talking about that. But, and it is yeah. It is such a different opening than um, than Die Bu- uh, Gunbuster, and it's mm-hmm. nice that it's like, oh, this really piques your interest. You know, it's not going to be a remake of Die Buster, right? 
Yeah. Um, and the first episode is definitely the most comprehensible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> aside from the twist. But there's something about it, you know, that that it feels different. Like, it feels different. And I'm not sure it's, like, in a good way. Um, but I like, and especially with, like, Gunbuster, like, you see so much of that world and you have a very keen understanding of how that world functions, right? It's very militaristic. There's sort of one enemy... Uh-huh. Uh, you have to destroy that enemy. Everyone is working in service of destroying that enemy. Whereas in this one, like, it's it's very abstracted. Like this idea of how does a society function? Is it moneyless? Uh, you know, why are they just guarding? You know, a fence on Mars um, and stuff like that. Like, there's a bunch in there that yeah, they really know, have to like add they, like yeah. layers to the world building as the series goes on because. Yeah, in Gunbuster, it's like, okay, it's it's Earth. Like, this makes sense. They have a little bit of a presence in space. Whereas this one, you know, you get three or four episodes in, and it's like, oh, wow, there's, like, a whole civilization on, like, Jupiter's moons and, and on Pluto. And apparently, like, we're just everywhere in space right now. But also, there's somehow, like, a whole space monster planet, like, just beyond the orbit of Pluto. And and comprehensively, like the way it it even like reveals peels the onion off of like the different monsters and the sort of fun- military function of society is really obtuse relative to how it was in Gunbuster. Like I feel yeah. like the the lack of like a main threat for a majority of uh, you know the first little bit of this series is what makes it one of the more like difficult things to follow. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the main thing. Is like the the goal of getting into the military to fight space monsters in Gunbuster is very clear, but like the goal of Nono getting into the space force thing or whatever is less clear. It, like she, I guess her motivation isn't very clear. It's just it seems just like she just wants to be in space and that's it. She wants to be like No No Riri, which is like I believe yeah. uh, by the end of the series you find out that's taken place like ten thousand years after. Um, yeah, it's like six Gunbuster. months before, before the very end of Gunbuster. <laughs> um, which is uh, absolutely incredible because it's like Society A doesn't seem to have progressed that much. Um, <laughs> but but B, um, it. It's amazing that like they they have this whole like idea of like legacy within the story, but it's not really explored in a way that I think is super effective. Like it, it's a plot twist more than it is like a thematic device. Um, uh-huh. Which like uh, have you ever watched Babylon Five? I haven't. No. Babylon Five has this like incredible episode called the Deconstruction of Falling Stars, which is. Um, an episode where they look at the legacy of Babylon 5's plot in that world, um, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, and then a million years in the future. Okay. Um, and it's it's split into five segments, each of which is like 15 minutes for each of the um, eras. And it's such a like beautiful way to like contextualize the things that you have been watching, the things that have happened here have had this impact in shaping humanity's future, right? Um and it's it's such a good cap to like what the series is all about and i feel like if they had if they had actually opened with like telling you who no no riri is and like the place she has in society as a whole and stuff like that um as like a mythic hero figure 
as like literally a Jesus coming back to earth at this point, right? Um, it it would have been stronger and like tied into Gunbuster more. <laughs> yeah, because the weird thing is like Nono Riri is just Nono's name for Noriko. No one else knows who she is. But like, I kind of figured it out immediately. Like, oh, she's talking about Noriko. That's what that's what she meant. But it's supposed to be presented as like this mystery. Um, there's also this weird bit that they're doing in the first episode. I mean, it's funny, but I don't, I don't fully get it. Is uh, no, no, just keeps splitting things in half. Like she, she's, she's working at that bar. <laughs> she's working at the bar, and she like is splitting plates in half constantly while washing them and she was just eating an apple and it split in half i don't really get it but it is it is kind of a funny visual bit but it's it's just weird it's hilarious i think the implication i think it's supposed to be a setup for the fact that she's revealed as a robot um like near the end of the episode because she yeah the last thing she splits is the monster (laughs) oh okay Um, but at the same time, it's, again, just a weird way of exploring and uh, entering into that idea. Yeah. Yeah, um, another thing that's weird is uh, you were asking about whether the society uses money. They they are talking about paying her wages, but she's only making 720 yen an hour, which is seven twenty, like $7.20 in listen, U.S. In dollars. Free, in a free market, uh, in, in this, like, post-utopian version of capitalism... Uh, deflation will occur. You know what I mean? I, yeah, um, yeah. I hope that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because otherwise point, she's really getting shafted. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point they were like, you know, they were real Zimbabwe hours. You know, an apple costs seven trillion yen, <laughs> and you know they just they just pegged the currency to I don't know space plutonium or something like that. Yeah, um, and force like deflation <laughs> uh, to occur. So that that's, everyone that's one of the things uh, I really liked about uh, Trigun. Did you ever watch that show? Trigun is my favorite anime of all time. Okay, yeah, I really liked that they did everything in double dollars, and it was like just really ridiculous amounts. Because that's what was very it? believable. Bash the Stampede, the the six hundred trillion dollar man or whatever. Yeah, double dollar. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, Trigun works so well because I think. I, it was one of the first animes I watched, which is probably why it's one of my favorites of all time. But like, yeah. um, it's it's balancing of like tone is really what works, right? Like it it has a really funny, really engaging, really charming like main relationship, and its protagonist is great. But like, the series where spoilers, uh, where the episode where like Wolfwood dies is mm-hmm. even now like watching it now is really affecting and really yeah. sad. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. Um, and also, just Wolfwood as a character and Vash as a character are fucking cool as hell. You know what I mean? That crossgun right. <laughs> is so fucking good. Uh, we need more crossguns in society. Um. Okay, so let's move on to episode two, since I think we just are confusing ourselves even more by talking about episode one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's only going to get worse from here. So, like, yeah, buckle in, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so... Episode two is like a fairly straightforward conflict. Like it introduces the space mon- reintroduces the space monsters. Um, the military tries to fight them and gets owned like really bad immediately. Um, which I think kind of like counteracts the whole hard work and guts message from Gunbuster because 
the military like has been working really hard at trying to um you know become powerful and they have like huge amounts of confidence way too much confidence but then they just get owned so badly by the space monsters in like a really comedic way and just have to get saved by these like uh hereditary uh like topless people like people with hereditary power um that was actually something i saw in in some of the reviews where people were saying that they do kind of undermine the message of the original gunbuster with the way the topless worked which I mean, now that i think about I it i kind the, of agree with i think the show as a whole um does like undercut the topless at a certain point is like you know the hereditary power that's true isn't yeah. actually that great at, at challenging the monsters you might be able to answer this question for me um these space monsters are different than the space monsters in Gunbuster, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not going crazy um, here. I think they're supposed to be like an evolution of them. I mean, the whole thing in Gunbuster was they destroyed all of the space monsters. At yeah, the that's end. what I was thinking. Yeah, but I think what what happened because they're called fluctuating gravity wells. I think what happened is the monsters just got crushed into black holes and then they evolved into being black holes, like living black holes. Because that is like the, the type of monster they deal with the most in here. But there are also different ones. So I think there's, I think there's like two different groups. Okay, that's actually kind of cool as hell. But then again, there's that part where they're going to meet with the space monsters and then the giant fluctuating gravity well comes out from the 10th planet. So right. maybe they are all the same. I think they're all the same. <laughs> yeah, I that part confused me because that's the part that really undercuts the original um, Gunbuster for me. Is like I wish they had come up with some sort of new threat um, to articulate rather than like you know just saying that everything that Noriko did in Gunbuster was sort of rendered useless. Yeah. Um, all that said, Gravity Well, a monster, super cool. I loved the degeneracy talk uh, throughout the series. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, if we destroy the black hole, it'll create a degeneracy cascade, which is, again, so funny. Um, degeneracy cascade. Hey, what are you talking about? All the fan service in this show? <laughs> which this episode had a fucking stupid amount of, by the way. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's horny as hell. This series yeah. is hornier than Gunbuster somehow. It it is. It really is. Um, yeah, especially like the Nono's balloon skirt that she's wearing that just constant panty flashes. Did not really like that. I my favorite thing from episode two though was the dog shaped spacesuit, which is like the cutest thing I've ever seen, possibly. <laughs> Those were nice. Like it's and it it's so like dissonant with the fan service too. Uh-huh. Um, which I guess is like a very Moe thing to do, right? Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Like it. It. But you know, the suits on their own are hilarious and cute and extremely funny. Yeah, they're great. Um. Uh, another. And, go ahead. Oh no! I. What were you gonna say? Um, I was just gonna say uh one like interesting bit of characterization that they did. Um. I didn't really think about it too hard, but there maybe there is something like deeper about it is uh Lauk has like this thing about listening to heartbeats like it calms her down. 
Yeah, it's a it's a very like you know warm piece of character development, and also mm-hmm. we don't get a ton of that throughout the series, but stuff like that does help i think the series as a whole in terms of just like fleshing out the characters making you more interested in them like i wanted to learn more about i think every other character except for our main one um like their inner lives and like what led them to this point and stuff like that yeah yeah i think the the best the most well done character is taiko because we do see some of her past and find out like what's motivating her and she has like a nice um what word am i thinking of not resolution but like uh like arc yeah um, yeah she Taika yeah. was cool as hell yeah um yeah i still think that is the best episode um and like there's stuff in there that that speaks to again the way the world has changed like the serpentine sisters and stuff like that are really cool elements that are you know perpetually added throughout the show and like explored a little bit, but nowhere near as much as they like should be. Yeah. Um, I, I do think episode two was the one where I like episode one was pretty watchable and I really enjoyed it. Episode two was where I was like, okay, this is not, I just have to accept this isn't going to be as good as Gunbuster, uh, both yeah. in terms of it's like thematics and both in terms of it's like ideas and especially it's characters. But like, you know, that moment we were talking about with Gunbuster when, um, Noriko's like uh, crush like dies in that space battle and she goes to mourn with the like other engineers or whatever or the other pilots and they just look at her and she leaves and yeah. it's such a fucking good moment there's no moment in this series that sort of reaches I think a level close to that right where it's just like perfect visual storytelling perfectly earned and stuff like that but i mean die buster is fun it's a lot of fun to watch even if you have no idea what the fuck is going on yeah i i will disagree with you on that one i think the moment where taiko uh gets the new buster buster machine and is like it, it was actually one of the few good uses of nudity where she's like nude floating in space and is remembering this boy from her from her past and kind of like um coming to the realization that you know she has to stop letting it define her life and kind of become her own person um right i think that was a really well done moment yeah i know mean, just was, generally i think episode nice. three is 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 really good and and the peak of the series to me um it's it's funny because like we're you know both gunbuster and diebuster are six episodes but the whole time i was watching this i was like man they should have made this as long as uh gunbuster like it could have used like two episodes to space everything out and then i you know this morning i was like just looking up the show again to i was like fuck gunbuster was six episodes you know what i mean like it, it felt <laughs> Like, it fit within that framework really well. But, like, episode three, I I agree with you, is the high point of the series. But it also could have been two episodes and, I think, functioned, like, just a whole lot better. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So, I actually uh, just put it on because, uh, I don't know, I just want to rewatch it. it. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's great. Yeah. Um, So, like, right when the episode starts, we see Tycho, um, who, she's... I missed who it was the first time I watched the show. It's the girl with the pigtails. So she 
like jumps into combat um like when she's not supposed to because she wants to uh set the record of confirmed kills i guess and um there's like some ceremonial privilege that you get from that that uh she actually like when the subject comes up she's talking badly about it like oh it's just you know you just read a prepared statement it's not really a big deal but she also i think just wants to feel like she's better than lauk who is always the person who gets to you know that to be in that ceremony um and right away we see like after she jumps in her earring comes off and she grabs it and while she's distracted by it she uh her mech gets destroyed um which we find out why that is later and i think that's like a a well done piece of characterization um so it turns out later that the earrings were made by the that boy from her past who had a space radiation syndrome just like coach from gunbuster um and she uh, became a topless while the boy was still alive and thought she would be able to heal his radiation sickness. Uh, but he ended up dying anyway. And so that's kind of just like eaten at her for her entire life. Um, and th- the earrings uh, that I mentioned were made by the boy. Um, I don't know if I said that already. Um, and uh, it's I think it's well, really well done uh as a symbol through the whole episode um you know someone uh, a kid steals it while she's uh changing and uh she runs after them and um it's like these like gutter kids who ask her to make it snow on titan um which i thought was a a fun plot detail um and then later in the episode she like uh, kind of gets fed up with everything and throws the earrings away. Um, and uh, then later on in the episode, uh, Nono brings them back for her. And that's kind of when she uh, has her... Is it apotheosis? Is that is that the right term? I don't know. I, I think so. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um and yeah, I, I think it's a really great story arc. You know, she her first mech gets destroyed, so it's like she's her initial fall, and then she comes back in this new Buster machine that they just created. It's uh, uh, Contravantes, Contravantes yeah. Neuf. Yes, uh, ninety. Which if <laughs> yeah, if I was if I was uh, an actual you know Canadian, I would know what that meant, but. I don't know French. <laughs> yeah, uh, they do have the weird one of the weirdest numeral systems. Uh, so it's four four twenty uh, four twenty plus ten. 10. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so that yeah ninety is is the Buster machine, and so uh, yeah she uh, she actually is able to make it snow with her new Buster machine because it has this like tennis attack. <laughs> Like it, it Which hits an energy rules, ball with a tennis racket. Sorry, go, yeah, was that? that that part actually rules. Like the the yeah. again, like especially with the way they like anthropomorphize the uh, Buster machines in this one. Yeah, like one with like a fucking tennis racket is extremely hilarious. Like rocket cape, 
yeah. is extremely good. You know what yep. I mean? Um, those like touches are really what make the series stand out for me because it's just really clever and like really inventive uh, design for like the way the mechs work. It's like very, very much better than like oh, it's now pulling out a giant gun. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I did like the tennis racket thing, and uh, yeah, so that she, you know, she does her tennis serve, her Serena Williams serve, and um, it uh, it has a theory, a theorized effect of uh, like shooting a beam that's like was it negative ten trillion twenty million degrees or something like that, and they're like, that's not yes. even physically possible. <laughs> It's like these these temperatures are not scientifically possible, so we have no idea what will happen. Yeah, and uh, so what happens is it like freezes everything and makes it snow on Titan, which is a nice resolution there. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, overall, I think she's uh, I think the the best done character in the show. Um, I kind of wish that she was more had a more prominent role because she kind of becomes a minor character again after this episode the the if they had made her a more prominent character instead of um lalk i think it would have been like just generally a more engaging show overall because like they're like her and um nono's plots like they work really well together and like especially as like inversions of each other and stuff like that um Mm -hmm. and uh you know they're both looking for something like one's looking at something far back in the past that they feel like they have an emotional attachment to one's looking at something in their immediate past uh, and stuff like that. Like there's, there's a way you could have explored that in the way that both these people think that like achieving the same goal of becoming, you know, the best topless um, or the best pilot will help them get that thing that they need. Right. Whereas with Lalk, like her motivations are pretty like diaphanous throughout the show, except for the fact that she wants to be the best. Right. Yeah. I I think that speaks to how character archetypes can actually be very effective in making a story better where like, you know, you, you might think it's like a crutch to lean on sort of, but the fact that, um, uh, what's her name? The other main woman from Amano from uh, Gunbuster. The fact Oni-sama that she's like is how I remember her. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that she's like the you know class rep, like top student thing, like it makes her motivations very clear. Whereas in this one, no, it's like I don't know. She's not really an archetype. She's like a weird goofball. Um. I can't think of an archetype that relates to her. And then same with Lauk. She does, she doesn't fit a neat archetype. And, and so it, it makes it harder to read what her motivations and concerns are. Um, but and Tycho, like, I think, I is, mean, is clearer. Archetypes exist for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like they, they give you something measurable to, like, just uh, immediately identify, especially in a series this short. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. also, like, uh, Gunbuster did a really good job exploring and inverting and, like, you know, uh, iterating on the archetypes they present in episode one, right? Like, the way the characters change by the end, um, they they become the opposite of what they were at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. We're like, we're like um, 
Onisama or whatever her actual name is. Um, Amano. <laughs> Amano, yeah. Uh, Amano. Yeah, this is this is me becoming a weeb. Yeah, I mean, like, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Amano is uh, is the like scared, timid one, right? And the yes. and um, Noriko is the one who's like pushing her to be like, no, we must do this and stuff like that, right? And those transformations uh-huh. are a very natural occurrence. And like in this one, there is degrees of transformation but you know it's sort of i agree it sort of like stops mostly at episode three with taiko um as opposed to you know gunbuster where it was like a very clear through line for all the characters like Mm -hmm. a lot of this is just no no discovering higher degrees of power she didn't know she had yes um like it's every episode is potentially you could just call it like a deus ex machina yeah i yeah i think you're right um i'm trying to see if this came out okay this this actually came out before gruen Lagan, which is surprising because it has a lot of the same uh style like in general and of like storytelling because Gur- have you Gurren seen that Lagan, show i've seen like a little bit of it but uh like of that of that, like, you know, sect of, like, you know, Fooly Cooly, Gurren Lagann. I've only seen Fooly Cooly to its, like, start to finish. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it has the same kind of, like, um, bigger, stronger type progression. Um, and they even have, like, a very similar style. Um, Diznuf, um, Lalk's Buster Machine, looks pretty similar to the main character in Gurren Lagann. Like, he has the cool anime long coat that you know flaps in the wind sort of thing so fucking cool by the way yeah so fucking lit yeah (laughs) it is really cool (laughs) yeah i i think that is like the strongest point in the show is like the mecha designs have improved substantially um they also uh i will say one thing they do really well in this is uh their visual gags well just their gags in general are great um like I was thinking earlier that um, Nono actually kind of reminds me of Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Um, oh like, yeah. Like the slapstick. There's is one part great. where she's in the background and she's like floating in a space station and she's like flapping her feet like, and and it's like sending her up and she like she's like flipping over and I was just thinking like that's something that Bugs Bunny would do <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like the um the visual storytelling of this in terms of like the way the gags are played out the mecha design, the moments where it is like a lot of the series is wall to wall dialogue, which uh, mm-hmm. made it like, which I think also makes it difficult to follow. Cause like yeah. you can blink and miss one line and then not know what's going on for the next like yes. five to 10 minutes. That happened uh, to me which, so many times on my first watch through. Yeah. Like I would, I would check my notifications for like 10 seconds and then go back to the series. And I'd be like, the fuck just happened. <laughs> um, as I was yeah, watching it's like, it. who are these twins? Like, <laughs> what are they eating? <laughs> Um, but like, that's also like a very Gynax thing, right? Where it's like really good visual humor, really good, just like gags. And like, obviously like the animation, isn't Gordon Logan like a comedy? Isn't it Uh, like a satire? It has comedy elements. Okay. Um, another really great gag is, uh, in episode three is, um, Catravant D's, uh, when, when the machine is shipped into the space station it's in like a big plastic container like you would get an action figure with like a bunch of accessories like all of its parts are like in their own little space 
in like a like a plastic <laughs> container and there's like stars like star stickers on the top of the plastic it's really funny looking um and then another joke i think it's in episode four uh probably my favorite one is uh they're this is just like a little world building thing they're showing like this space traffic and uh so there's like all all these lanes of traffic and uh someone is on the radio saying like because of a multiple vehicle pileup, uh, traffic is currently backed up for 680,000 kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> it's moments like that, that that sell you on the world too, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's a really just like neat and fun way to like get you more into like the world building of the series, which I, I would argue that the series is bit like biggest weakness is the obtuse world building, but stuff like that, uh, sort of kept me in it as we were yeah, going it's through good it. and bad like they do a lot of good world building things like uh one, one of the moments that i liked for uh in terms of world building was when they take a picture of all of the topless and they're like wow this is the first time that we've all been together in like so many years and that that kind of makes it feel like they thought about that as a, an element of the world um how like the time dilation stuff yeah, and, and just the fact that there's, like, all these topless, but they're all doing their own thing most of the time. And then there was that uh, that character, the otaku guy, who he was kind of like an exile from them. I don't remember why exactly, but... Uh, I don't remember his plot at all, I'll be honest. It's, yeah. Uh, it wasn't, not the it most wasn't memorable, but yeah. they, they tried. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, like, his plot was one of those things you could have cut out to help space out, like, the everything else in the series and stuff like that. Because, like, until you mentioned him, I forgot he was in the series. <laughs> um, which I should really watch this twice is what I should have done. Um, I've watched it, like, three just, or four times, and it doesn't, help a ton. it doesn't help a ton. It's still very confusing. Okay. <laughs> um, but it is fun. Episode... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, like, despite, I know we're, like, ragging on it a lot, but despite all that, like, I'm still, like, I still enjoyed it. I still really, yeah. like, thought it was, like, a fun series. I don't, I didn't feel like my time was wasted at all. Um, Like, the animation in particular is, like, such a fucking great high point of what it is and the yes. design of the world and stuff like that. Um, And then you have stuff like, I don't know, the Serpentine Twins, which are absolutely, like, such a neat element or whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, they are um, some of the creepiest characters I've ever I've seen in any anime. <laughs> um, and they're yeah, like they're what the oldest living topless, right? Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, and that stuff like that is really interesting because there's this idea within the series that um, that you age out of being a topless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just to see the effect that's like it had on them, uh at being like as old as they are um and still have that like is it psychic energy uh it's like they're they're eating some sort of meat of i think it's of a fluctuating gravity well that's like supposed to be dormant um, right. but then it comes to life in episode four so yeah, they introduced the Serpentine Twins in, in this one, and um, that the one dude, this uh, this is another issue. I I can't remember any of the characters' names. the The topless guy who like tried to rape Noriko at one point, or no, no, at one point, 
Um, oh, fuck. Um, he's, I think he's about to age out of being a topless, and so he's uh, partaking in the same meat as the Serpentine twins, um, which he finds out what it is later and is, like, really revolted. Um, um, and th- yeah. yeah, this is also when Nono finds out she's, like, a super powerful buster machine, right? Um, I love that they still made the, uh, like, meat of the space monster look like classic anime food. Like, it yeah. <laughs> it looks like a delicious steak. Like, it looks like a nice, um, like, filet mignon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, like, also, and, like, on fire or something like that? Yeah. Um, and, like, on the table, which is inexplicably shaped like a heart, um, <laughs> it's there's just this, like, big-ass roast of fucking a space monster on it. which is very funny because you know that in the world some guy some guy got an assignment being like yeah you're going to the space monster you're going to carve out some of it and then you're going to give it to a chef who's going to cook it up and feed it to these like demon children (laughs) (laughs) um and like that scene uh in general like uh when they're showing you the like excavation and research on the fucking space monsters and stuff like that is super cool like they've built this whole industry around like studying and carving out um and like taking bits out of the monster and it's like very grim but like also very industrial like it's very believable in terms of like what humans would do if we found a giant monster in space that's supposed to be dead yeah they had the same sort of thing in um pacific rim there's like a whole industry around using the parts of the monsters the kaiju which is great um like it it's it's again one of those like very neat touches in world building i'm sure that like i know that pacific rim draws a lot of uh draws a lot of inspiration from like eva but in mm-hmm. a lot of ways it feels like it draws even more inspiration from the buster series like yeah um gunbuster and diebuster gave me pacific rim vibes especially diebuster which had those like you know archetypal not archetypal, but like very specific kind of mecha anime and stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Episode four, I think, is is so good in terms of like a moment to moment basis, but as a whole, is very difficult to like a keep up with. B, like by the time you got to episode four of of Gunbuster, you sort of knew where it was going in terms of an ending. Um, and in this one, I felt slightly lost um, by the time it was over yeah i mean episode four of gunbuster was like it felt like the show could have concluded there that was like the thing about like what you were saying earlier where you're like wow it's only six episodes because um in episode five of gunbuster that's that's like after they've beaten the first major uh, space monster swarm and return to earth um, right and and you're like wow like what else is there going to be in the show like they've already beaten the, the big space monster swarm whereas in die buster episode four is like kind of just the beginning of the major conflict like i i feel like the the swarms that they were fighting in episode three kind of felt like that was just like an everyday occurrence sort of thing like just like it's like a you know a militarized border situation this like fucking dmz with people creatures you can't really speak to (laughs) yes exactly um because i mean they had that 
that weird like net grid thing, like laser grid that the um all those little robots like the the three robots in the first episode um are I guess they're just like a standard type of space robot. <laughs> and uh so they're building this big like laser grid thing that just felt like, you know, they're doing like everyday sort of work. Um the design of those robots too are extremely good. Like I love that yeah. like very boxy. It's very like a, a weapon to surpass Metal Gear design. Yeah. Um yeah. you know, but it's so it's so cool and like feels like that's the part that feels like we're like 20 years away from it, just like a giant World War 1 box tank but on legs. <laughs> yeah. Um I guess another thing about episode 4 that like I th- one of the reasons it's really confusing, like not only the dialogue that just goes at a million miles an hour, but also it's jumping around to all these different places, like all throughout the galaxy. Like right now I'm watching yeah. it and they're cutting from like earth to like Pluto to Titan to like all these random spots in space where there's like, you know, these military um areas to like space stations and it's just hard to follow like why are they showing me all these places like what's going on exactly uh they they randomly cut to the space monster that they're like harvesting the meat from which is is cool they like have this like robot arm with like a laser on it that's like cutting meat from it (laughs) and that's one of the things with um with Gunbuster is that Gunbuster has extremely good mecha shit, but it's like yeah, the mecha shit is so much of like it. It takes such a backseat to everything else in the series, which is like the character, the story, the world, um, and most of it takes place on one ship. Like four episodes of that series are essentially just on the spaceship, right? Yes. Um, whereas this, it's like I I appreciate what they tried to do, which was like combine um the like fold the mecha into the story Uh in like a far more you know deeper way i'm just not sure if it worked out the way they um intended it to (laughs) yeah they definitely introduced some really cool elements like the the idea that um the the mecha are they're alive they have minds and a big part of their power is like the experience that they accumulate because the otaku guy at one point is talking about how um Diznuf has like more experience than almost any other machine and he has like this uh like head injury but if he were to uh repair the head injury he would like it would basically be like brain damage and so he'd lose all this accumulated experience and so they just sort of like leave it there and that that's like set a setup for uh, something at the very end when they actually like take that part out and there's like an actual cockpit in there. Right. Um, I thought that was really cool. Um, also the cockpit designs in these mecha are really fucking cool. I think it's like the coolest cockpit design of any show I've ever seen. It's <laughs> the, like, it's bike extremely seat sort neat. Of thing. Yeah. Um, in this like what circular cage, right? Um, yeah. They're like, yeah, they have a circular like ring thing around them and then like just a big, uh, like spherical display all around them. So it looks like they're out in the middle of space, like sitting on this like weird bike seat thing. Yeah, no, the, the design of it, uh, and it 
like looking at the director's body work makes so much sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was an art director on Eva or whatever and, and a bunch of other stuff. And it's like, it it is really well thought out when it's, when that's like taking center stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would love to see, I would love to see of all, I think a lot of animes, I would love to see this remade. Um, I would be really interested to see like if, like what sort of lessons they take and what sort of things they keep in like a, an OVA update of this or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like, uh, put Kazuya on like art direction. Cause he's obviously really good at that. Um, and maybe get someone else to direct it and have like, you seen re- the m- rewrite some of the story that I think that would have make you it. seen the movie version of this of what? Apparently, this was compiled into a movie, um, like, you know, huh. as I guess OVAs are sometimes. Um, and I'd, I'd be interested to see if it works better as a as a movie than as a um, as a series. Like, in one go, cut out a lot of the stuff in, like, two and a half hours long. Okay. At least according to a Wikipedia article. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I definitely missed that. Yeah, a compilation movie condenses Gunbuster and Diebuster into two feature-length movies. That is really interesting. I will have to check that out. I I would never watch Gunbuster as a movie, I don't think, just because I, I love the series so much. But this one I would definitely give a shot as a movie. Yeah, for sure. It could make it um, more or less confusing. could go either way. <laughs> I think the... the the one sitting uh, with this would actually be a lot more comprehensible, um, but maybe that's just me. Because, uh, like, yeah, it was it was a tough follow, but again, not terrible. Yeah, I think if they cut a lot of stuff, then it it could make it way less confusing too. Right. I, I um, like. I think I sort of agree with you about the otaku guy. Like, they probably could have cut him, and a lot of stuff would have been less confusing. But then again, I don't know, because uh, like when Nono becomes Buster Machine 7, she's with him and is on like Pluto and then like warps to Titan. And that right. probably would be more confusing. Do you know but, if yeah. uh, if Gynax animates uh, on ones or twos? Like, do you know if they're running 24 frames a second or like 16 or, or 12 frames a second? I um, have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's it's like in, in animation, uh, especially like hand-drawn animation, there's um, like two ways you can animate. You can animate on ones, which is every frame is a different animation cell, which is like very smooth and crisp. and like, uh-huh. Or to save time and money, you can animate on twos, where a single second is 12 frames instead of 24, which is like a lot more jittery. Yeah. Um, and there's points in this that feel like smooth as hell and just like really slick and clean to watch. But other parts where it feels like they were trying to save money or speed things through. They didn't do the Hideaki Anno thing of having the last episode be a sketchbook. Yeah. Which, um, <laughs> yeah was was good and bad. Uh, but like, I yeah, think that was one of the more memorable feel, parts of yeah. Gunbuster. Yeah, I, I like. I remember we were talking about Gunbuster. And I was like, I thought it was just an intentional thing he did. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I didn't realize he just. Yeah, runs nobody out could of tell. Because, because I remember looking that up and and nobody knew whether it was intentional or not. Um, but it is it is a very Anno thing. And they try. I don't know. To maybe do the maybe Anno with thing. CG technology, they have the ability to do both. 
like right. ones, ones and twos. Right. And yeah, like I guess if you're animating CGI at 24 frames, everything else has to sort of speed up to match. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of those things where like even in episode five, like they have like they finally have a scene with bureaucrats, which is rad. I love bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, and especially like looking at Japanese uh, explorations of bureaucracy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is like it's such. I know from my experiences in Japan, it is like such a process driven society, right? Like, um, the process of ordering food, for example, is like, you know, you take your things, you put them on the table, the cashier takes the food off the table and then hands you a tray. And then you put your money in the tray and slide the tray back. And then they take out the money. They count the money so that you can see their, giving you the exact change. They put that back in the tray. They hand it back to you. (laughs) You pull the money out of the tray. You push the tray back. Then you walk down the line where someone will individually bag everything for you. And then they hand you the bag, right? Like it's, it's (laughs) bureaucracy is like a very, like, I think core function of just like societal norms in Japan. And it, it's really goes down to like a base level. So like always seeing bureaucrats arguing over things is very nice. You know what I mean? Like it's very, it's very interesting to see like how far they go with like a critique of what in, in a lot of ways is something intrinsic to like the polite function of, of society um, in Japan. Right. Yeah. It also seemed like everything the bureaucrats said was like extremely wrong. Was that just me? Yes. No, it, like, it is like very Hideaki Ado. I know it's not Hideaki Ado, but it's like yeah. very much his style of critique of like Japanese bureaucracy. Yeah. Because they're, they're meeting the space monsters to like they're going to the 10th or 10th 11th planet and um they're like oh uh you know nono is controlling all of these space monsters and uh they have lalk in the cockpit with him and they're like oh she probably invited you so that she could demonstrate her power to you like <laughs> no <laughs> that is definitely not the reason <laughs> and yeah like um i i do like that about i think well, like every both of the Buster series and Eva and especially Shin Godzilla, um, mm-hmm. have this like abject contempt for bureaucratic process, which is really nice. Like it, it both speaks to like my politics, but also speaks to, um, just like a very interesting and and usually like unobserved critique of like societal function, right? Yeah. Um, which is which is really cool. Like I know I don't know if you ever watched the movie Shoplifters. No. Um, uh i'm trying to remember the director of that movie um uh Corrieta, i think um it's it's a film about uh, a homeless family um in tokyo who take in a another uh homeless child who's being abused by her yeah hirokazu Corrieta, who's being abused by her parents right and like a big part of the film functions on like child services in japan stuff like that right and a lot of what they're allowed to get away with or a lot of how they get away with their like grifts and stuff like that and like keep the family unit together is by exploiting the slow and oftentimes like counterintuitive bureaucratic process nice um and it's like it was like a big thing within the movie that's like very uh like again like rarely if ever see that right i think that's one of the reasons shin godzilla was so well received too because it was just like you know the whole thesis of that film is like fukushima happened because bureaucrats were arguing about process before it's like robert i got an urgent email from my iww branch today and Uh i opened it 
and the urgent email was, um, there's been a revision to Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> yeah, and like, I, the one thing I will say about Die Buster as well, far fewer Soviets. <laughs> yeah, that's a really disappointing part of it. Gunbuster already has Soviets in the future. So the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 or whatever, um, I think I think they should have just st- stuck with being like an alternate timeline where the Soviet Union lasted until, you know, we went into space and everything. Um, especially since like the entire society seems to be like this weird like giant version of Japan. Yeah, because they have like uh, when um Lalk is talking about using earth as a weapon against the giant fluctuating gravity well she meets up with these like sort of like elders in like a japanese style uh house where they like make her matcha and they're you know sitting seiza and all that sort of sort of stuff and uh yeah i don't know like that part of the society is kind of weird that it's just like Japan, but through the whole galaxy. And uh, yeah, I, w- and I do it, wish there were Soviets. <laughs> that would have been awesome. It it would be cool if because we jump around so much, you know, if each if each planet or something was reflective of a different yeah um, society, right? Like the idea yeah. that that the world has been atomized into like individual space empires is like very believable, especially from where we started in Gunbuster, right? I yep. I have a hard time believing that there's going to be a unitary um like a completely hegemonic force in the future right yeah yeah it seems like they just have one single like like a unitary state through the whole galaxy because they're 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 like oh this is like the military police guy not like the military police guy of like this state or like this society that he's just like the guy um right and they, one thing that uh, they keep mentioning is Condians, which uh, Hermes isn't here, but I, I know that he would say, I read that as Canadian for the first several episodes. So did I. <laughs> I, I 100% did. Every time it came up, I turned to Megan and I'm like, Canadian? I, I like the idea that in the future, there's only two surviving Japan and Canada. <laughs> Japan and Canada. Yeah, they have... The the summer uh, Olympic games are extremely boring, but the winter games extremely good. <laughs> you know, uh, very, very well put together, very well established, highly competitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, honestly, like that is I. Uh, nation states are bad, except when it comes to, or states in general are bad, except when it comes to sports. At which point, I am like an ardent nationalist, um, <laughs> because I'm a hypocrite and I love sports. But like. Um, I yeah I do I do like the idea of, of it being Canada in there because it it is extremely funny. Yeah. Um. But apparently it's just Canada. Yeah. I have you ever seen Yuri on Ice? No. Um. Yuri on Ice has probably the best depictions of uh, Canadians in any anime I've seen, which is just their. The Canadian figure skating team is just the douchiest, most uh, snooty, <laughs> self-important team. Um, oh, so they're from Vancouver? Yeah, they're basically Vancouver Heights. <laughs> um, and they're extremely, uh, extremely, extremely funny. And it's just like, it's a very nice way of seeing 
uh, Canada represented in that, um, in that, like in, uh, I guess, uh, media that's not from Canada, right? Because uh-huh. usually media outside Canada depicts Canadians as being like extremely polite, extremely nice, extremely good, not genocidal at all. Um, yeah, the, whereas, the like, exact image that Canada yeah. wants to portray of itself. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, speaking of the early 2000s, um, I traveled a lot in the early to mid 2000s. A lot of times with my family and my brother was like doing um, anti-globalization work, sort of all around the place and stuff like that. Nice. Um, and we made it very clear. It was v- made very clear to us that like because the Iraq War was happening and stuff like that, you have to have a Canada patch somewhere on your person that's like visible because uh-huh. especially like traveling to like the middle east and like uh, places like like morocco and egypt um and even europe at that time right which took a largely took a much harder stance against the iraq war than like britain did um it it actually did make a pretty profound difference now people treated you um because uh, if they could identify you were canadian they they didn't have that baggage of like oh you're an american therefore you must be like this right um which is very very funny like even when i was in japan telling a cab driver you know you know in broken english he's asking where you're from and in broken japanese you're saying oh canada and people open up uh very quickly after you say that (laughs) um but yeah unfortunately it's it's canada and not canada in die buster yeah and that's another one of those things where like i never quite got what that was supposed to be like I didn't really, I don't really understand what what Condians are supposed to be. I think um, it's a group like of people. Every, yeah, I I think so too. But like every Canadian who has like a Canadian inferiority complex about the place they live in, I just got really excited about it almost being Canada and forgot to read the part that explained what they were. <laughs> yeah, there's not um, even like a wiki page that explains it or anything. You love to see it. <laughs> um, maybe that's just maybe that's just the future. They just took a vowel out of Canada, and Canada, you know, did some other horrible shit to other people in space or somewhere else. Right. Um. Yeah. Uh. Like in general, I think that like to take it back to episode five. Um. This is, I think, where I got the most confused, especially like in the last half. Uh huh. Um, just like everything that happened where they're like going to attack the monsters now. And then the big monster shows up and you're like, what is this big monster? Um, and also where is this buster machine coming from? (laughs) Yes. Um, and this is also the episode where we find out that no, no is a buster machine, right? Right. Um, buster machine number seven, uh, with no context given as to where she came from. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, we, we were already talking about how we don't really know anything about her origins or anything like we do with Noriko. And, I mean, the new Buster Machine is 90 and Noriko is 7. Which, but also, also most, why, isn't it, why isn't it set? One? Why is it the only one that's like a number instead of a French <laughs> numeral? <laughs> um. um. And then yeah, like maybe maybe how old is she it's then? French, yeah. Um, and that that that's the part that makes no fucking sense, like comprehensively. Um, maybe maybe the Candons took over design of the Buster machines, <laughs> which is why at a certain point they're all French numerals. Um, <laughs> but like, 
Yeah, it. The only thing I can like, think okay, of so is she... like it's a pun off of her name because one of the ways to say seven in Japanese is Nana. Nana. Okay, and I guess that makes no-no. sense. Yeah. Um, um. So maybe that's what it is, but she's, I, I don't know. Sh- she's number seven, um, but also the most powerful one. <laughs> yeah. Like by a country mile is the most effective and powerful buster ever made. Yes. <laughs> um, I I will say one of the things about this series that frustrated me a little bit is like there's only one real buster in uh Gunbuster, right? And that is the titular Gunbuster. It is Well, there's there's one and two and they merge yeah. to become Gunbuster. Right. Yeah, Buster Machine 1, Buster Machine 2. Yeah. Yeah. Um so it's like the you know, when you get Gunbuster, it's really earned. You know what I mean? Like they yes. spend the whole series uh, you know, getting up to this point where you you break out the busters, which are like proven to be fragile and like you know expensive, and you pull them out when you need to pull them out and stuff like that. And there's like a lot of hand wringing in the series about like we're gonna we're gonna do Gunbuster now, guys. It's the only way out of here, and yeah. it's gonna have treads for some reason. Um, but like, uh, in this one, it's just like busters all over the place, right? They're just literally everyone is busting in this series. <laughs> so much busting. <laughs> yeah. Um and that that part, you know, frustrated me. Uh but like also it's sort of uh cut by the fact that the cool fight at the end of the episode 6 5 5 is absolutely amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the fights in this are I I think are better. Um which I'm sure is partly a function of the fact that they have cg animation um they can just do more with the same budget you know um and and that is one of the things that saves it is is the the cool action scenes um but i the ending like the the final action scene i think is is definitely not as good like the final action scene in like was it the final one? Like the the one where they actually get into Gunbuster and they're like, you know, doing their thing in, in Gunbuster was just outstanding. Um, especially it, it's like the type of action scene that I like where everything is just completely over the top. Um, but I feel like uh, when Die Buster comes out in this, it's it's toned down quite a lot comparatively. Yeah. Like Deez Nuff um, seems like more over the top because he he has like um the big like buster beam and he has like missiles in his arms uh he has missiles in his like cool anime coat and she like takes the coat off and throws it and it turns into a fucking giant cannon which is awesome <laughs> which is so fucking cool like that the cape physics in this are stunning yes um you know, uh, and also, like, that weird, like, eye thing he has on his wrists, which, like, explodes into, like, beams of, like, killer light or whatever. Yeah. Um. Is, yeah, like, the, uh, that whole subset of, like, the series, the way, the, like, how creative they get with the mecha is uh, one of its, like, strongest points. Like, you yeah. could literally just watch a, um, a clip show of all the mecha fights in the series and get a lot out of it because they're just really clever and really funny and really just like spectacularly well done and the cgi actually looks okay 
especially for its era. Like it doesn't yeah. feel dated now as much as it could be. Yeah, you know, I like I almost wish it was just like three hours of robot fights and like no plot. Hell yeah! Like I would watch that because the the plot is is so convoluted that I don't think it's helping a whole lot. Um, and if it were just like, even if they just did like you know, 20 minutes of plot through the whole six episodes as, like, a thin excuse to do giant robot fights, I think that would be great. Um, I'm totally fine with, been... with thin plots for for action sequences. Like John Wick. Could have been, like, that yeah. kind of style, you know? Um, I mean, John Wick. Yeah. John Wick is great because the world building is great. The plot doesn't exist. But, like, mm-hmm. the action and the world building just support it so well. Yeah. Um, and, like, I think... Uh, this series tries to find a halfway between I think what they thought people wanted at the time and trying to like keep the like semiotics of Gunbuster in there a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it sort of meets like a mushy middle position where, um, you know, once again, it proves that centrism doesn't work as well as everyone <laughs> thinks it should. Like, um, you know, whereas like, yeah, Gunbuster is way more cerebral, right? And especially at episode six, which has, I will say, episode six has an extremely rewarding payoff I did not see coming. Um, but also, <laughs> um, everything leading up to that point is, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. You mean episode six of Die Buster? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes um, it gets confusing when <laughs> we switch between both. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, at the end of episode six, it's shown that this series is, uh, actually r- takes place right before the, e- um, end of Gunbuster does when they come yeah. back to earth 10,000 years later. And like, they put up the message being like, you know, welcome home or whatever. Um, which is cool. I also do like how they, um, how they, uh, you know, insinuate for a while that Noriko dies. Like, I wish they had kept that uh part throughout or no no sorry they kill no oh, yeah. right uh-huh. yes okay yeah i like how that happened i like that they actually had the guts to do that yeah and um you know even though i don't think the whole uh thing of using earth as a giant missile makes a ton of sense and they don't really explain why they wanted to do that very well but it does kind of explain why like there's no lights on earth even though there's clearly like throughout diebuster there's clearly people living there but like you know at the end of gunbuster noriko's approaching earth and there's like no lights on the surface which makes you think oh maybe humanity didn't make it and then the, all the lights come on um the idea that they were using earth as a giant missile and it had to be totally evacuated kind of explains that a little bit <laughs> And it's a it's a really cool idea on paper. I mean, like yeah. from a visual and like style standpoint, um, the fact that it's Lalk who's the one being like, "We gotta turn Earth into a missile," is like a dimension of a character I wish was explored at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, like just just the fact that this is where her mind goes is fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah. Um. But, I mean, as a whole, I think that episode six is a interesting conclusion. Like, it makes me think of, like, is Reach for the top three going to be, like, Noriko and Lalk teaming up now to fight 
to finally defeat the monsters or something like that. Like I yeah, don't I really do hope that Noriko is in. Here, right? I really do hope that Noriko is in. Aim for the top three. Um, because that would be fucking amazing. Like I would love to see. Like I'm a huge fan of like Rip Van Winkle type stories where someone just disappeared. Yeah. The Futurama thing, right? Where you just like wake up in a society that's alien to you in the future and have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and it would be really, especially with how much of like Noriko's character we know, be interesting to see how she deals with that. Um, that, yeah, that's exactly what I was like, thinking when you when you brought this up. Yeah, yeah, a new Buster world or whatever that she has no real relationship to, and she's still in the OG Gunbuster, and it's like, you know, clearly not as cool or as capable as like anything else in the world at that point. Right. Yeah, but that, I mean, I, great yeah, I don't know what. I don't know what they're going to do for Aim for the Top 3. Like, I really wish I really wish it wasn't coming out in 2022. It takes a fucking <laughs> long time for anime sequels, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> like, how long has Eva 4 been in development? <laughs> oh, I didn't even know it was. Or is it the fourth movie or the third movie? Am I getting them mixed up? I haven't seen them, but I yeah, know there's I, apparently one left. I, I still haven't seen those, uh, the newer ones. Maybe I, I haven't because I'm yeah I it's the same reason I haven't read Game of Thrones is like I want to make sure the series is done before I invest myself into it especially no, that with makes the, sense, yeah. the new Evas yeah um yeah I don't know what your overall thoughts on six were um I yeah personally I I thought episode six was a satisfying conclusion to it felt like a side story in the world of Gunbuster more than its own thing at that point, but I didn't hate it. It felt like an extended prologue to what I hope is a, um, is a Gunbuster three. Yeah, I, I did really like the the payoff at the end, um, but other than that, it, like it was just okay to me. Uh, like I said, I I didn't think the action with Diebuster was very satisfying. Um, and I mean, honestly, like if they didn't tie it in with Noriko at the end, like it, I probably would have thought it was just bad. I agree. Um, <coughs> I would have been wondering what this had to do with Aim for the Top at all. Um, yeah, if that was the case. Um, yeah, but it's nice to know they take place in the same universe in that way. And I, I again, like, th- I wish this was like a manga or something because I, I would, I think the exploration of like. Noriko's legacy and stuff like that were like underused elements that could have been nice to explore. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's just like a lot of things they could have done that, that they just for whatever reason didn't. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's certainly a series and it's I think it's worth watching. I don't know if I'd go back to it again until Aim for the Top 3 comes out, I think as a whole. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have a, a review or two uh, that we can look at. Um, these yeah. are these are uh, really bad reviews. Uh, one gave it a three and one gave it a four. Uh, so I'm going to start with the four. Um, <laughs> so the four, the the reviewer didn't even like Gunbuster. So in the first, the very first sentence is it failed as a sequel to a failure. Dot dot dot. That some talent. Uh, <laughs> joke aside, it's really bad. 
on the same level as the original Gunbuster, but unlike the original, it's not even so bad, it's good, it's just bad. What does this person like? I'm not even sure. Like, uh, here, I actually I did look for their review of Gunbuster. Um, <laughs> they, yeah, let's see. The reason I'm giving it a five and not a four or three is because it's short, and a lot of time it's so bad it's good. So they gave Gunbuster a five. Um, they said the characters are cliche and rushed. The plot is paper thin and at times really stupid. And uh, let's not talk about human tactics and weapons. It's as stupid as it can be. <laughs> Um, Incredible. But overall, what the series suffer the most from is the character development. It's so rushed that we barely care when something happens. The best example is Smith, and the instant he appears on screen, it's already obvious that he will die in no time, and he does after having less than 10 minutes of interaction with the MC. So the MC is really sad and traumatized, but as viewers, we really can't connect with her. <laughs> um, I don't know where this phenomenon emerges from of, like, a lot of, like weebs and like anime diehards um like more than i think any other fandom uh are far too and insanely invested in these things like it becomes a point of of their personalities to let you know why something is good and or bad uh relative yeah. to the other elegant anime they definitely like yeah yeah, there's um, even a rule on my anime list for the reviews where it's like, please do not mention other anime. Just talk about this one. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And it's just like, you know, talk about, I guess, like Hideaki Anno in general, mecha anime. Um, but like, why? Like, there's nothing about, uh, like, I know, in my opinion, there's nothing about Gunbuster that's like cliche. In fact, if there is, it's because it was a very early mecha anime and sort of wrote yeah the, because it was influential yeah yeah exactly uh but it still holds up that's the part i don't get is like it's still good to watch i really enjoy the hell out of gunbuster right yeah um so at the very end of their gunbuster review uh they say if you want some better sci-fi if you like the monster suisei no, gar no gargantia has some really similar one but with actual character and plot um that is uh, Gargantia on the Verduras planet, I think. And we talked about that, and it's definitely nowhere near as good as Gunbuster and has, I would say, less character development. Um, I don't know. The, like, I, I don't understand a lot of these reviewers. Like, I can under, like, I understand better the people who are just complete surface level. Like, I like this show because it has titties and giant robot fights. That makes more sense yeah, 100%. to me. Yeah, 100%. But if you're trying to be like, no, the character development is bad in Gunbuster, like, sorry, that's incorrect. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, like, I don't know. Like, it's, you see this with a lot of, like, niche fandoms, but, like, I, I'm really curious as to, like, you know, your thoughts on, like, the socioeconomic relationship between, like, the lives a lot of these people live and the investment they put into, like, this very specific genre of media you know what i mean where it, it yeah. becomes sort of all-consuming for them yeah um because i i really can't figure it out like why anime is it is it this idea that like anime is represents a better life somewhere else like is that what it is like it's i think that is a lot of it. people yeah because okay. a lot of a lot of these types think that it like there's a like a pretty uh well-known idea that 
these guys like think that if they move to Japan, their life will be so much better, and they'll have like you know a hot waifu, and you know people will like them because they know all this stuff about anime and shit like that. Um, yeah, and but that's a cliche. That's not actually like uh, maybe I'm being naive, but do people actually think that? <laughs> I I mean there definitely are some people that do. I don't know if it's that prevalent, but yeah, I don't know. It would be interesting to like try and get into the psychology of weebs, uh, for like a whole episode. Um, I just like, don't know I, who I, I would talk to about that. <laughs> you yeah, know? like I, I, I could think of I could think of a few people actually. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, like with my overall thoughts, like I I don't know, like I I get it in Japan. You know, what I mean, this idea of like otaku, like you live in a very regimented in a place that you know, it's, it's function as a society is extremely regimented. Um, you, your childhood is basically entirely built on this idea of like, what can you do as work? Right. Like the way people are streamed into, uh, education systems and stuff like that entirely speaks this idea that like, you need to figure out what you're doing and how to make money and be productive. And like anime. Yeah. I mean, they have like special middle schools for like people who are like on a, you know, higher track. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, like food ma- wars magnet like schools that, that for yeah. middle school kind of thing yeah exactly and like food wars is really is takes place in one of those right where it's like a school for people who are good at culinary arts right mm-hmm. um and stuff like that so i get it there where like you know people who are obsessive about anime a it's the dominant media form there right yeah. like of, of cartoons and like animation um but also it's it's extremely it's like a really good escapist fantasy but like people here who are psychotic about anime um strike me as extremely like i odd like i don't i don't know if you feel like alienated by society and escape into this whole of anime like uh, most anime is speaking to uh, you know the function of japanese society as being just like the the fucking wage slavery you live under now just times a million right yeah um and stuff like that like i think what people don't talk about like i remember this pretty aggressively and and a friend of mine who you know mildly a weep uh who moved to japan to teach english and and uh, was a lot better about it than i think um the cliche is um was talking about like yeah you know every day you you'd go out and you'd drink um and if your boss went out drinking you weren't leaving until he decided he wanted to leave Mm -hmm. um and but at the same time you also wouldn't leave your house till you wouldn't leave work till like eight PM because you don't leave until the boss leaves, right? Mm-hmm. Um and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, he's like it's incredibly alienating because you just have nothing to do uh, except sit there and work and you wouldn't be allowed to have your phone because that wouldn't be kind and that's just a function of how like you educate and stuff like that, right? Um and stuff like that. That's like, you know, to what degree like what what do a lot of these people think they do in Japan? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, like what, yeah. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think maybe a lot of it uh, for um, Westerners that are really into anime is like a function of sexual repression because anime is very horny. And I think the people that tend to get into it are really into the horny stuff. Um, I mean, there's like, like there's a type of guy on Twitter where they're like a really like alienated like fascist type and you look on their timeline and it's just hentai like retweeting hentai nonstop. 
That's actually my display name right now is Alpha who only retweets hentai. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Which is, I'm making fun of that type of guy. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it. But yeah, yeah. I think we and should like, like, I guess... have a whole episode about this. Yeah, and, like, I guess the idea of, like, you know, like, the Edward Said thing, right? Like, Orientalism uh, and, like, mm-hmm. fetishization also plays a role. But the idea yeah. of, like, the, the like, meek, uh, ideal woman and stuff like that. Yeah. I, you know, that's a good point. Like, definitely probably speaks into it, right? But, like, people who write reviews, <laughs> thousand-word reviews. Like, I I looked up Die Buster on um, YouTube, and there's, like, a, a bunch of videos that are just lengthy lengthy defenses or teardowns of die buster you know what i mean just like more than your average clickbait should you watch this or should you not watch this but like you know guy sitting in front of phone being like or in front of webcam being like okay i'm gonna talk at you for a long time about why everyone else is wrong i invested the time into this i definitely don't have notes but i'm going to be riffing off the top of my head alone <laughs> about why this anime is good or bad right yeah yeah and it's uh one of these, you know one of these is an hour and 31 minutes long by the <laughs> way um you know there is a lot of like people that are really into talking about pop culture all the time like identify with it as like part of their personality like they feel that if you criticize uh like this happened a lot with like Gamergate and Anita Sarkeesian like if you criticize anything or, or you say that in some way it's like not perfect you're like insulting them personally and um they have to like react to it and defend it in order to like preserve their own ego and um and then i think uh, uh, like on the contrary there's like this type of guy uh that wrote this review where like they're defending their ego by like saying like how much i don't know like being contrarian and saying like how much smarter they are than the people who wrote the show or whatever um because like this whole thing is like about how stupid the show is which fine but like dude it's anime like all anime is stupid (laughs) like especially sci-fi like all of it is dumb they all have like like nothing is realistic so like talking about the realism of the series is really just pointless. He like he's talking about how like oh the uh where is it? Um worst of all the world building one of the aspects where the original wasn't all that bad is here ridiculous. Basically every Deus Ex Machina now works thanks to magic instead of techno BS, but in, aside from that nothing has really changed in 12,000 years. Like okay, yeah, it's t- like magic but it's 12,000 years in the future so (laughs) (laughs) just suspend suspend your disbelief a little bit like it's fine Um, i don't know there's there's a subreddit called weeaboo tales um Uh which is definitely worth checking out it's just people who have had horrible experiences with weebs um one way or another and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not saying, like, every fandom has its toxic elements, but there's something very specific about the, like, uh, predominantly, like, you know, uh, like, very uh, white, slightly upper middle, slightly middle to upper middle class, like, insularity of, like, this fan base that, like, leads... It's, yeah, this idea that you're the smartest person in the world about anime. 
Yeah. Um, competing with everyone Which, else who also thinks incorrect that's me yeah yeah a hundred percent it's i i will i will actually fucking advocate on this um unless unless you're also uh reading you know long texts on anarchist history and political <laughs> science and economics and also watching a ton of anime you are not an expert in anime <laughs> i will i will go to bat for you on that yeah so this other review does the same sort of thing. They're complaining that uh, they say, whereas Gunbuster used real hard science for its science fiction. Not correct. What the fuck? What the <laughs> Diebuster fuck? uses pseudoscience superpower nonsense. This and more serve as only a taste of how incompatible, for lack of a better word, the world building is and why crafting a coherent world is always important. I love the idea of hard science because there's a, literally a mecha in like the end of Gunbuster is a mecha transforming, doing karate kicks. Like, yeah, doing karate kicks with like, for some reason, like I still can't get over it. I will never stop thinking about the fact that I built a space machine to have treads on it. Yeah, um, but just like you know, not like physically impossible transformations of robots with like nine million different machines. Like you know why there hasn't been a walking tank yet? Because it is the dumbest from like a practical idea. It is quite possibly the dumbest military weapon you could ever create um, <laughs> because you're just introducing joints and weak points yeah. into into something and, and motors into something that could like ambulate over hills and rocky terrain with treads, which is what they normally do. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like, yeah, there's a reason Gundam isn't real and like we will never have a weapon to surpass Metal Gear because like taken to its like logical extent it would be the most it's like something the king of saudi arabia would spend a billion dollars to create and like i wish he would fucking that mega would, city would honestly be, yes i would have mad respect for him <laughs> there is the guy who invested millions into creating a real life gundam i think there is that story yeah um yeah i don't i used to follow yes. this group called uh mechanized propulsion systems that was like a bunch of mechanical and aeronautical engineers that were trying to create a walking uh mecca and uh i haven't checked on them in a, in a long time but um they did get a prototype at some point um and then they like sort of they didn't really use it very much and they immediately started working on the like mark ii um and i just looked them up on google images and they already have the mark three version um that has like this the cgi rendering of it they have like like fake like machine guns on it <laughs> here i'll send you the link in the discord it's um, uh extremely rad i'm seeing like people have built them but they're slow <laughs> um yeah they don't have weapons and um they look like honestly they look like a stiff breeze could topple them over <laughs> yes um, um there's actually uh i don't know if you've heard of hands off isaacen it's uh from last season it's an anime about making anime and there was a great scene in it uh, where there's like a, a giant robot club and uh, they want, uh, they commission the uh, main characters club, which makes anime uh, to make a promotional anime for them. And uh, right. they, they go through this whole thing where they're like, we have to strike a balance between like semi realism and like, being cool because in reality like giant robots are completely impractical and would never function for anything and like the 
the club president of the giant robot club is like freaking out and having a fucking breakdown and then eventually <laughs> accepts like okay yes i know giant robots could never work in reality but they're just so cool i just love them <laughs> That's incredible. Um, when I was in Odaiba, which is a man-made island off of Tokyo, which is just, it's it's like going through to like, I don't know, um, it's like a presentation of all these tech companies that's permanent, where it's just like all this cool technology that they're building, all this like interesting concept cars and shit like that. Like it's gross, but also very cool to visit because it's just like yeah. a giant tech tourist trap. They have huh. a giant Gundam statue there and a bunch of other like smaller Gundam concept things. I have seen um, the I've seen pictures of the giant Gundam <laughs> statue. I'm pretty sure there is a little note in English that cuz a lot of these like like Toyota had like a futuristic concept car that's being like, you know, in 2030 uh, we might have cars like this, and that's what Toyota is working towards. I'm pretty sure uh, by one of the Gundam exhibits, there was a thing being like, these are unfeasible. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, it's just something cool we have here. Yeah. Uh, the original Gunbuster, while it could be a little silly at times, had a rather serious military tone, which totally disappears in the sequel, with silly robots, silly hats, even more broken physic. The tone is way closer to Gurren Lagann, which isn't a problem in itself, but it breaks the continuity between the two, quote, seasons. Uh, and if that was all, it wouldn't be much of a problem, but everything else is broken. The story goes nowhere. Just end with a big monster appearing out of nowhere because of one of the most stupid logic. Uh, Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Um, let's see. What else? Uh, oh, and the, and the other one, I think... I forget which one, but one of them is like talking about how it's not as funny as Gunbuster, which I thought there was only like one or two like actual jokes in Gunbuster. Gunbuster was that I can think of. Serious. Yeah. Um. So I don't know what they're talking about there. Um. The reviewer that gave it a three actually isn't as bad as I thought, honestly. But three is a very low rating. Um, cause they're just saying it's mediocre, which like, if it's mediocre, you give it a five. Um, oh, uh, they think the mecha designs are awful. That's really weird. <laughs> Buster machines are now biomechanical machines that can only be piloted by people with some hereditary superpower gene rather than robots that take skill for any able-bodied person in general to pilot. They each come with different powers, including the ability to freeze space creatures in space space creatures in space with quantum temperatures and controlling and turning other ships into creatures to use during battle via psychic powers or something akin to that. What are they even talking about there? Um, let's see. <laughs> Doo -doo -doo. It's, it's, yeah, it's fairly ridiculous. Um, I know we're like long on time here, uh, but like there's a great, um, there was a great thing going around Twitter uh, yesterday, um, which was like uh, Roger Ebert uh, absolutely bodying an entire subset of nerds. And someone pulled <laughs> a quote from his book where he said, like, a lot of fans are fans of fandom itself. It's all about them. They have mastered the Star Wars or Star Trek universes or whatever, but their objects of veneration are useful mainly as a backdrop to their own devotion. Anyone who would camp out in a tent on the sidewalk for weeks in order to be the first in line for a movie is more into camping on the sidewalk than movies. Extreme fandom <laughs> may serve 
may serve as a security blanket for the socially inept who use its extreme structure as a substitute for social skills. If you already know what to say to each other, which is much safer than having to ad-lib it, your fanish obsession is your beard. If you know absolutely all the trivia about your cubbyhole of pop culture, it saves you from having to know about anything else. That's why it's such excruciatingly boring to talk to such people. They're always (laughs) asking you questions they already know the answer to. Which, um... In typical Twitter fa- fashion, people have been taking this quote and saying that Ebert is um, like uh, pre- was prejudiced against uh, neuro uh, a neurotypical people oh, and autistic yeah. people, which is uh, I think is dog shit because the idea that like autism relies on a weird obsession isn't of itself like mildly offensive to me as someone who is like a neurotypical. Yeah, um, that seems pretty offensive but, to me too. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that like pretty well describes the ethos of this fucking reviewer. You know what I mean? It's not about the thing he's watching. It's about like being able to prognosticate his knowledge of anime as like a medium. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just like I don't know, thinking that I don't know, like critiquing things without understanding like first of all what it is you're critiquing but like what what actually makes things good and bad is like very common thing here like um i always i always think of this post by um jack allison i don't remember what exactly he was talking about but he was talking about how he didn't like a series because it was like badly done like it like thematically didn't make sense or something like that. You know, one one of his like uh like film TV critic type opinions. And someone replied to him like, I just like it because it has like cool fights and stuff. And he's like, that's <laughs> totally fine. If you enjoy it on that level, I have nothing against you and that is totally a totally acceptable way to engage with it. I'm yeah, just telling absolutely. you how I feel about it. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, that's that's really, like, I think the role of, of criticism in general is something, like, you know, we could talk about for hours, but, like, criticism is inherently, like, should be, like, an academic pursuit, which isn't to say that people shouldn't do it, but, like, it's it's not just is this thing good or bad, right? It's, like, is this thing rooted in how does it recontextualize what came before it how does it speak to like culture as a whole what does it say about the role of like media in our everyday lives and like how does it feed into or challenge the impulses of like other similar work right like um like that is ultimately the role of criticism and i think that like everyone has obviously the capacity to speak to things on that level but like we've gotten to a point now where like you know a a majority of quote-unquote like criticism when it comes to like especially niche shit like anime and um and like video games are like is it good or is it does it have a seven or does it have a ten (laughs) i mean like is the two are the two like polar opposites like um i don't know like i'm i'm you know this about me like i'm huge into like sneakers and stuff like that and sneaker criticism Uh like good good sneaker criticism like the youtubers who really get it are like you know jacques slade who will like pull out a pair of jordans that look a lot like other jordans and be like how does this speak to like the design ethos and the evolution and the material evolution of Jordans? Who is this for? Like, what's it trying to speak to? And then he'll talk about whether or not it's comfy, 
right? Like, <laughs> you know, it, it speaks to like, okay, this is how this culture is evolving and this is its place in that culture. And like, should you or should you not buy it based on those things, right? Like it's ultimately a consumerist pursuit, but it's different than guys who are like, dude, this is this is not going to resell very well. Um, don't buy it. It looks like a brick. Um, and uh, it's not, it doesn't go well with my, you know, Supreme hat or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it sucks. I yeah, if you ever want to do uh, an episode on fictitious capital or the nature of fandom, uh, consider me game. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, let's let's do final thoughts here. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think we kind of talked a lot about our overall thoughts on it. Um, but do you have anything like to wrap up the show with? Yeah, I think it's worth watching. I I think that Gunbuster is much better, but I think Diebuster is worth watching at least once. I think mm-hmm. that it's got like a lot of it's far more entertaining than um you know uh than it has any right to be. It's not it's not like something that'll stick with you or last with you as long as um Gunbuster did with me. Like I I remember Gunbuster. I've forgotten a lot about uh, Diebuster at this point. I finished it yesterday. But um, yeah. But it's uh, I think in general, it's a it's an absolutely good series. That's like you know, it's it's interesting to t- see two people take on similar material and the outcomes they they get out of that, right? Like what they choose to focus yeah, for on. Sure. Like also as an articulation of like Hideaki, how good Hideaki Anno is as a creator, right? Like like to yeah. see someone handle the material just not as well. Yes. Uh, but yeah, those are my final thoughts. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with you there. Um, I mean, I think the fact that it's only six episodes means like you really can't waste your time very much watching it, especially now that we're all in quarantine and oh, we're yeah. basically all just like baking bread and watching TV all day. <laughs> um, Fucking bread bread baking Twitter is I I hate it. I hate it so much. It's, oh really? I, I get so. <laughs> I listen, I get it. You made bread. You're very proud of this, like, you know, sourdough you cultivated for 20 years and gave a name to or whatever. Um, but uh, like, I, I'm going to be a toxic fan for a moment and just say, you know, it's pretentious as fuck. Um, people who are, who are that obsessed with their sourdough starter. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just a fucking hater. I probably am. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. I am. I, I, I will self crit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think it's worth watching, uh, for sure. Um, I wish it were like thematically coherent. Um, I think that is like one of the biggest, uh, things that you would notice if you watch both in a row is like, there's a very overt theme that Gunbuster has and it tackles it really well. Um, and it's, you know, the through line for the whole thing. And uh, with Die Buster, it's there's no. I don't think there's a clear theme that emerges from it. Um, and uh, I don't know, like, but you know, like we said, the the action is really good. Um, the animation is really good. So on that level, it's definitely worth it. Um, I mean, the animation in Gunbuster is is outstanding, but mainly like for its time for cell shaded stuff and you know i know there's a lot of people that think that cg animation is worse than cell shaded but that, i think that's a pretty absurd opinion to have and 
um, you know, having like nicer looking, smoother animation is better than having like the hand colored, like choppy, choppier and less um, like elaborate or what's the word I'm thinking of? Like, uh, hmm, uh, just like more spectacular, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's one thing to I think it's admirable to like look at hand drawn animation be like man they did this by sitting in a room for like five million man hours and created yeah. this yeah um, they, but like, they only had also, six layers that they could work with yeah. and um yeah I mean Why both are great you... examples of animation yeah. at their time um and yeah I, I think Diebuster is worth know... watching on that merit alone. I don't know why you'd fetishize like people toiling over something that they could do better and smarter and have more creative freedom with in a computer. <laughs> like it, like Gunbuster. That's another admirable. thing that hands yeah. off Isaac and talks about. Is, uh, oh fuck yeah! One of the characters wants to hand draw every frame, and the uh, character that's like more of like the business manager type person is like, "Look, you don't have time to do that. You like." You have to tween. You have to use tweening, and like, just look at it. It looks fine. It, uh, nobody can tell the difference between the CG and your hand-drawn stuff. Just do it. <laughs> um, I uh, I was reading yesterday that Miyazaki's new film. Uh, there's after three years, there's about thirty minutes done because it's all hand-drawn wow. on ones. Wow. Um, and uh, like I, I respect that because you know he's a craftsman who puts care into his work, but also like this is what he grew up with using, right? Like this is what yeah. he's comfortable with, and this is the medium he knows how to work in. Like I, I if I don't know Makoto Shinkai or some other like big uh, anime film director all of a sudden went from like CGI to being like this next one's hand drawn. It's pretentious as fuck. Yeah, even among uh, like even though we kind of ragged on it a lot and it's not nearly as good as Gunbuster, it's still better than, like, a lot of mecha anime that I've seen. And I watched a lot of it um, for this miniseries. Like, I've I've been seeing people talk about Macross recently for some reason, and uh, Macross, like, fucking sucks, actually. It's really bad. I was going to say, Macross is not good. I've actually seen that one, and it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so instead of wasting your time watching, like, Macross or something like that, uh, watch Die Buster because it's definitely better than that, at least. <laughs> so, um, hell yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Abdul, thanks for joining me and talking about thank Die Buster. You. Uh, I, looking forward to so aim for the top yeah. three. Um, do you have anything to plug? I w- I will say real quick. I really enjoyed uh, your episode on uh, Kim Jong Il's book on film. That was fucking fantastic. And so I would recommend anyone listen to that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, like the, the Kim Jong-il episode sent me down a rabbit hole. That was <laughs> a lot of fun to go through where I read I read Kim Jong-un's polemical on like humanics, which is his personally created study of like humanities, uh, of, <laughs> humanics. of the humanities. Yeah, it sounds humanics. like webistics. <laughs> It it really is like it really feels like you know when you take a deep dive into like Poseidism or something like that like uh-huh. it, it was that level of like discourse um, but somehow <laughs> let more obtuse um, 
and then like it, it just led me to like looking at like dictatorships in general uh and like reading a lot about saudi arabia and stuff like that which i've as like someone who was born muslim like always had a fascination in uh and stuff like that um and it's yeah i i highly recommend that episode it is it was a lot of fun to record kim jong-un bona fide filmmaker really uh, incredible filmmaker um <laughs> or film film scholar i should say yeah uh i have a podcast called kino lefter at kino lefter on twitter uh we are a podcast that aims to take a deep and left-leaning look at uh whatever movies are new and hot that week in theaters from the idea that every piece of art is somehow a political document that reflects and looks at the culture as a whole um and you can also follow me on twitter for my spectacularly bad takes uh, at abdul y malik um please do not at me about my thoughts on the ussr the holodomer i will not reply to you i won't block you i just don't give a shit um but uh yeah no those are the two things uh you can check out and thank you so much for having me on ryan i know we went two hours and 10 minutes so whoever made it to <laughs> here i'm proud of you <laughs> Yeah, hopefully I'll be able to cut down the time a little bit, but uh, Hell yeah. yeah, I think most of it was good, so um, cool. probably keep most of it in. All right, man. Uh, thank you, okay. and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.